Good morning. More people here than last time I was here. It's awesome. Uh, well, I want to thank you all for um, giving me the opportunity to come west uh, a little bit. So I'm uh, the associate pastor at Sterling Park Baptist Church in Sterling. And uh, we miss you guys, but uh, glad you're here and glad that um, more people are coming uh, here and just really excited about what the Lord's doing here among you and uh, excited to share the word with you this morning. If you have, uh, if you have a Bible with you, you can open up to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. How do you know somebody really loves you? Or how do you know if you truly love someone else? These are the questions that people have been asking for centuries. And we've come up with a lot of different answers to this question. What is love? <clears throat> Here are some quotes. Love, life is a game and true love is the trophy. We are born of love. Love is our mother. Love is my religion. I could die for it. Love is the absence of judgment. Or maybe the now famous Tony Award speech from earlier this year by uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda. Love is love, is love, is love, is love. <clears throat> I don't know what that means, but people really liked that. You know, as a country, maybe even as a world, we are people who are in love with love. We all love love. At least we love an idea of love. I mean, what do our musicians compose songs about? What do our poets dream about? What do our activist groups fight about? Love. And yet, in all this fascination, the truth is that we can't seem to agree on what love actually is. We can't even really define love. So in all this talk about the necessity of love in our world, we fail to find a common experience that we'd all agree sums up the essence of what love actually is. So we love this thing called love, but when we slow down and think about it, we can't even really explain what we're talking about. So what is it? How do we actually know what love is? Can we actually know what love is? Parents, what do you tell your kids when they ask you what love is? Is there anything that we can point to and authoritatively say, that, there it is, that is what love is. So what would be really, really helpful is if the Bible gave us some kind of really simple, just one line, pointer, expression of what true love really is. And that's where the book of 1 John comes in. So 1 John is a letter to church. And in this letter, John is especially straightforward about the subject of love. And there are many different places that we could jump in in the book of 1 John. But this morning, I want to focus our attention on just three verses. If you have your Bible, look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. By this, we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our life, our lives for the brothers. 
But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You know, as Christians, there are many of the world's questions that we just don't have answers for. But the issue of love is not one of them. In our passage this morning, we have the secret. The Bible has a very clear answer to the question that plagues people's hearts the most. What is love? So I just want to walk through this passage together this morning, and I want us to basically look at three points together. So one, what love is. Two, what love is not. And then thirdly, we're just going to look at the fact that we ought to love one another. So first of all, let's, let's think about what love is. So if you have your Bible, look down there at your Bible, at the book of 1 John, and just notice a recurring phrase that we see here. So chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love. Skip over. Chapter 4, verse 9. In this the love of God is made manifest. Next verse, 4.10. In this is love. Chapter 4, verse 17. By this is love perfected. Chapter 5, verse 2. By this, we know we love the children of God. There are more examples, but that'll do for now. So in these chapters, in these later chapters of this letter, John is just repeating this phrase. So by this or in this. And he's using this phrase over and over again for a purpose. He's kind of using it as a highlighter for us. And what is he highlighting? Love. In every one of these instances that I've pointed out, John is highlighting the nature of what love is. He's saying, look. This is how we can know what love is. So the Bible is very obviously concerned that we're clear on the nature of love. And what is it? Back to chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Friends, you could go and search the writings of the world's religions until you die, and you would search in vain for such a statement about the nature of love. And why is that? Because the way that we know love as Christians, the way that we know love is that our God died for us. This is the secret right at the beginning of the sermon. So I just want to tell you, it's not getting any better than this right here. This is the fact that trumps all facts. This is how we know love. Jesus laid down his life for us. So this is what we're beginning to see, is that at the heart of true love, so what the essence of what it means to love is self-sacrifice. So it could be that this hits our heart with a good deal of indifference or apathy this morning. So I just want us to slow down and think about this together for a minute or two. So first of all, look at this statement in verse 16. So who is it that sets the standard for love? Who is it? Jesus, verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So we know from the rest of the context of the passage that the he here is Jesus. So true love is shown forth in a person. Okay, then, well, what did Jesus use to show forth his love? He used a life. In the incarnation, Jesus took on a body. He took on a life, and he used that to show us what love is. Okay, then what did he do with that life? What did Jesus 
do with this body that he took on in the incarnation? How did he show forth love? He took that life and he laid it down. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Now, this may not be new news to you. It's actually not because we sang it earlier, right? But think about this. John could have highlighted any aspect of Jesus' life and ministry in order to make the point about, true, about what truly defines love. And it's actually not common in our day, is it? Even in churches. So people, churches, will say that we should love like Jesus loved. You know how Jesus didn't judge people and how Jesus... Jesus met people right where they were. Well, could these things show forth Jesus' love? Absolutely they can. But they're not the thing that John goes to to show forth the essence of what true love really is. These are not the things that he goes to to draw the picture of the heart of love. So in this treatise on love, John doesn't try to show forth the glories of divine love by showing us that Jesus wasn't judgmental. No, where does he go? John goes to Jesus' death. And he says that is where we see love. When we look at the life of Jesus, where do we see the ultimate picture of love? John says the cross. The place in Jesus' life where we see love with crystal clarity is when he laid down his life for undeserving sinners. So listen, I just think about the kids and the the teenagers here this morning and how you should take this to heart. Write this on your heart. So in this crazy, confusing culture, when you're trying to discern what love is, don't think of a song or an impulse or an identity. Think of the cross. That's how you know what love is. That cuts through all the fog when we're trying to think through what love truly is. Think love equals the cross, equals laying down your life. Parents, teach this to your kids. Catechize them in this. Parents, ask your kids the question. Kids, how do we know that God loves us? And teach them the answer. The cross. The cross. Listen, God is love. That's true. John even tells us that in this letter. But the truth is that we can't actually see God right now. We can't lift up our eyes to the heavens and see a picture of God. So what do we do? We lift our eyes to the gospel. We look at the gospel to see love. And the gospel of love is the fact that Jesus took on human flesh. And he lived a perfectly righteous life that we should all live. All of us should live a perfectly righteous life. But we can't. And we haven't. We've all sinned. We've all rebelled against God with these lives that he's given us. But in his life, Jesus loved and cared for people perfectly. But it's in his death that we completely see. We, we see that he could completely demonstrate this love. Because remember, at the heart of love is self-sacrifice. At the heart of the gospel is Jesus' self-sacrifice. So Jesus, the eternal Son of God, he's always existed as God. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, didn't consider that something to hold on to, but he humbled himself. He took on a human body. And why did he take on a human body? So that he could lay it down. He took on life so that he could take on death. 
and the death, Jesus' death on the cross, what the New Testament tells us is it proved to be an atoning death, a substitutionary death. Jesus died a death that sinners deserve. That's what it means when John says here that he laid down his life for us. It was in our place. It was our death. And Jesus took it. And now what the good news of the gospel is, is that whoever trusts in Christ and his work on the cross, these people will be saved from the penalty of their sins because the penalty's already been spent on Christ. This is love. That's what John's trying to get us to see. That's how you know what love is. It's a death that frees us from death. In the book of Philippians, Paul is trying to get the church to kind of comprehend the depth of this love by unpacking the links that Jesus went to love us. So Philippians 2, you can just listen if you want. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. He's encouraging the church, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Tells us a lot about the nature of love, doesn't it? A couple things we learn there in 1 John and in Philippians about love is that love, evidently, it sees a predicament and it moves toward it. So that's what Jesus did, right? Jesus saw our predicament and he moved toward us. So he saw our sin. He saw our tragedy, our trouble. He saw our condemnation under the wrath of God. He saw it all and he had compassion. We see this here and all over the New Testament. Jesus saw sinners and he didn't hate them. He saw us and he moved toward them. And secondly, we see that he did not think of himself. He did not think of himself. Jesus, it's Paul's point here in Philippians 2. He had all the rights, all the rights not to serve sinners. And he didn't think of that. He didn't hold on to his own rights. Paul explains it yet another way in his second letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that by, your, by his poverty, you might become rich. Paul isn't speaking about money. He's not speaking about financial prosperity here. He's speaking of spiritual life. Jesus saw a poor lot of wretched sinners. And in order that these sinners might be made rich, spiritually rich, rich with salvation, rich with grace, rich with mercy, he had to become poor. He had to lay himself down if if we were going to grab hold of this spiritual prosperity. And that's exactly what he did. So we're kind of rounding out this picture of what love is that John's talking about in 1 John 3.16. So what is love? Well, genuine love sees a conflict, sees uh, pain and trouble, and it moves toward it. This is what the Bible calls compassion. That's what love is. So love, it also doesn't think about itself. It doesn't think about its own rights. 
And love empties itself so that the other person might become full. If it helps to think about it in rich and poor terms, think about it like that. Love is a rich person becoming poor so that a poor person might become rich. All right, so taking all that in, just think about yourself. So up to this point in your life, who has been your model for what love is? So who has defined love for you? It's somebody for all of us, right? So who has shaped your view, your practice of love? So what the Bible is telling us is that whether your model of love has been a loving grandmother or an abusive father, Jesus totally redefines what love is for all of us. He has love by laying his life down for us. And this he's done for you. So who, what is your model for love? And church, I would just say it it has to be Christ. It must be the cross of Christ. All right, so if that's what love is, then how do we know what love is not? I think this is a, a second thing that John shows us here. Look at verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? All right, so having laid out the example of Christ for what love is, he now lays out an example of what love is not. So kind of look at the the picture that he's painting here for us. So John's saying, so say there's a a Christian who has the world's goods, right? So the idea here, I don't think, is that this this Christian is necessarily rich. I don't think he has a rich Christian in mind. I think the idea is just that there's this Christian who has the means to live. So they have the material possessions required to live in this world. I think that's what he's saying here. And this Christian sees or knows of a brother or sister who has a need. So they come across another Christian. But instead of this other Christian having what they need for life in this world, what they have is need. They don't have what they need to live in this world. For whatever reason, we don't know why it doesn't give the explanation, but this brother or sister doesn't have everything they need to live in this world, materially speaking. So stop there even just for a second. That that scenario should sound familiar to us, right? Because that's the scenario, spiritually speaking, in which Jesus saw us. Jesus has everything he needs for life in and of himself. We have none of it. So it's kind of a parallel here that he's drawn. So here in John's hypothetical situation, we have this Christian, a person whose spiritual needs have all been met by the sacrifice of Christ, and he has the opportunity now to meet the physical needs of another Christian. He has what he needs And he sees someone in need. But what happens? The Christian who has everything he needs closes his heart against that brother. So think about the stark comparison or contrast being made here in these few verses. So on the one hand, we have Jesus' example. He has all spiritual good in and of himself. He sees people in need. And he lays down his life to meet their every spiritual need. And John says, okay, now think of this, maybe in your own church. And then you have, a, you have a person who has all the material goods they need for life, and there's a brother in need, and that person is hardened against them. 
And he asked the question, how does God's love abide in him? You know, I think in this one sentence example, John is showing us what love must never be. And what love must never be is a Christian who has benefited from the sacrifice of Christ refusing to sacrifice for a brother or a sister in need. That's what love is not. So John doesn't really expound on this situation, but maybe the man in verse 17 is, was a brother who loved the idea of love himself, right? So in verse 18, maybe from verse 18, we can kind of infer that he's got a Christian in mind who talks a lot about love, who loves in speech, in word. So maybe the guy in verse 17 is a guy who loved Jesus' love, right? He loved the gospel. He loved Jesus. He even worshiped Jesus for the love that he's seen in the gospel. And maybe this guy even looked around at his church with warm feelings and thought, I love these people for whom Christ died. But in the end, what happened is that a need arose in the life of one of those brothers or sisters. And if that need arises and that brother who loves love closes his heart against that brother or sister in need, you know what he's finding out? Maybe he doesn't actually love them after all. One commentator says it like this, no one truly loves his brother except he really shows this whenever the occasion occurs. How will you know if you're really living out the gospel here as a church? Well, which way does your heart turn when a need arises within this church? Does it turn outward to meet that need? Or does it turn inward, kind of closing ourselves and our gifts and our resources off to people outside of ourselves? You know, it's so easy in this world, even as a church, maybe even especially in the church, to fall in love with the idea of love without actually getting around to loving I think what John is teaching us in this passage, in this whole letter, is that the person who really proves to know the love of God is not the person who can spend hours in this meditative state on the love of God. No, it's the person who sees a brother in need and moves to help them. Is it money? They give the money. Is it a meal? They give the meal. Is it a place to stay? They open their door. Is it a ride to church? They pick them up. That's what love looks like. So love, what we're seeing here in the Bible, love is not some invisible force that we seek to feel, right? No, love is something you can see. We see it in the real life actions of Christ on the cross. And what John is saying is that we should see it in the real life actions of the church meeting one another's needs. Listen to the way John puts it later in chapter 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in, love, in us. You know, what we know from all the New Testament is the fact that the church exists, the church, this church even, exists to testify to the truth of who God is. You as a church, you're, you're here to proclaim what God is like. 
And I think the thing that 1 John helps us understand is that the church doesn't just testify to the truth through what we say. We certainly do. But it's not just through what we say that we testify to the truth of who God is. No, we also testify to the truth of who God is, John is saying, through what we do. So some books of the New Testament focus on the profession we're making about God with our mouths, right? With our words. But 1 John is getting at what we profess about God by our actions. And the question at the heart of that testimony is really simple. Do we love each other like Jesus loved us or do we not? I think what we're seeing is that the testimony that we profess about God through what we do is just as important as the testimony that we profess with what we say. And the warning is that if we just sit back, so as a church, if we just sit back and don't intentionally press into how we're loving one another, what's going to happen is that our natural, our kind of fleshly view of love is going to win out and it's going to blur the gospel. It's going to blur the gospel for one another. It's going to blur the gospel for the watching world. Because we can't help it. On our own, we are just so marinated in the idea that love sees other people as resources to be drained. So naturally, when we look at other people, we look around at the church, our flesh is going to think, oh, I wonder what those people can do for me. How, How are these people going to love me? What John is saying is that when we get a true glimpse of the gospel, we look around us. So true love shows up to church and sees this beautiful mess of people that we are as the church and thinks, not what can I get from them, but how can I give myself away for these people? How can I empty myself to fill these people up? What would that look like in my life? How can I lay my life down for these people? Not in an atoning way, earning your way to God. No, that's already been done through Christ. But in a, in a way of building up, in a way of testifying to the truth of the gospel. So brothers and sisters, I would just encourage you, if we, if we come to church week after week seeking and insisting that our own needs be met, with no intention of using our God-given gifts, our God-given resources to meet the needs of others, I think John would say, where's the gospel in that? How can the love of Christ be in that? So how are we doing with this? How are you doing as a church with this? So we've seen what love is. We've seen what love is not. So our final point is not profound, uh, but I think it is critical. And that's just this, is that we ought to love one another. We ought to love one another. Look at verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And what? And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Look at verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. There are, there are a couple different ways to express love, right? We can say it or we can show it. And the church has to be the type of community that is doing both. You know, as a church, I think you guys do a good job of expressing your love for one another with words. And I think that because you wrote it down. 
kept in your church covenant, right? So I asked Jacob if, if y'all's was similar to ours. It seems to be right on par with ours. So in that church covenant, so when you become a member, you sign on the dotted line to do these things, to express the gospel in love toward one another, right? It's things like walking together in Christian love. It's things like walking, uh, watching over one another in brotherly love. It's, it's things like aiding each other when you're sick and when you're in distress. It's things like being slow to take offense with one another. And that's really good stuff to commit to as a church. I think we see all those things in the Bible. But you see what John's admonition is here, don't we? So if the gospel is true, then confessing those things that you have in the covenant, that's right and that's good. But what John is saying is that merely confessing those promises to one another is wrong. He says, little children, let's not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Since Jesus laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for one another as a church. I think one reason this passage is so helpful is because it teaches us that it's not legalism to say that there is an ought in the gospel. So the language John uses here is a language of obligation, of owing. There is something that Christians, that church members owe to one another. If we have faith in Christ, there is something we ought to be doing. And what is it? We ought to love, not just in word or deed, but, or not just in word or talk, but in deed. We ought to lay down our lives for one another. We see this again in chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We can say that we ought to love one another because that's the essence of what love is. This is what John is teaching us. You hear this? If we, if we say we love one another and don't actually do anything about it, we don't actually love. Martin Lloyd-Jones is helpful here. He, he says, love, by definition, love is something which by its nature expresses itself. Love is something by its very nature has got to go into action. Love is always active. If there is no expression, there is no love. Gospel love does we know love by Jesus dying for us. And we show love by dying for one another. I think that's what we're seeing here. Okay, so I think we've got a pretty good picture of what love is and isn't here. And for these last few minutes, I just want to uh, kind of bring it home by just addressing the fact that this is really hard to do. So I think all of us would agree on what love is, right? That we've seen this, that because Jesus has done this, we ought to live in a certain way toward one another. But the truth remains that this is hard to do. We find this really difficult. So the question is, why? Why is it so difficult? More importantly, how do we fix it? How do we get better? So first of all, let's give the kind of fix it answer first. So how do we fix our love problem? So we're not very good at loving. Thank you, brother. 
So the fact remains that we're just not very good at loving one another all the time. So how do we fix it? And here's just what I would say. We fix this sin problem by repenting. So we examine ourselves and we, and when we examine ourselves, we'll, we'll, we will inevitably come across obvious shortcomings in this area of loving one another. So what we do is that we take those things and we confess them to God and we ask him to help. We say, God, I, I know, I know how I'm failing to love one another, I know what you've called me to and I, I can't do that. I'm selfish, I got all these things. So step one is we repent, we turn from that. We pray that God, by his grace, would give us an even fuller picture of the depths that he went to love us. And then we ask him that he'd give us the hearts to love our brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, that, in a way that more rightly reflects that love. Okay, but why is it so hard in the first place? So what keeps us from loving one another? What causes this disconnect, this short, between the commandment, what God has done for us in Christ, and our difficulties in this. So I just want to give you four quick things to end with here. Four quick reasons why we find it difficult to love one another. The first is forgetfulness. We forget the way in which we have been loved. We forget that we, the church, are the beloved. So if you read through the book of First John, this is what you recognize over and over and again. The way that John addresses this church is that they are the beloved. Six times in this book on love, John addresses his hearers as beloved. And why does he do that? He's not just being kind. No, he's, he's telling them the truth. Beloved means someone who has been loved by God. So all throughout this letter, John is addressing the people who have been loved by God. They are the beloved. You are the beloved. You've been loved by God. And what's his application? It's that the beloved, the loved ones, you love one another. It goes against your very being as beloved to close your heart against your brother and sister in need. So do you want to get better at loving one another? I think we've got to remember that who we are. What's your identity in Christ? Loved. You have been loved. If you have not been loved first, then don't worry about loving one another. But if you have, that's who you are. Love one another. I think this leads to a second reason that why loving other people is hard. It's that... Uh, is that sacrifice hurts. Sacrifice hurts. So if what we've seen, so love requires sacrifice, and sacrifice is painful, then it follows that love at times, maybe a lot of the time, is going to hurt. So having genuinely gospel-based relationships means that you are going to experience pain from one another. And this shouldn't surprise us or actually dissuade us from obeying. You know, one area where the rubber meets the road here is in our desire for kind of balanced relationships, just in life in general, right? So everything in us, everything in worldly wisdom tells us to seek and keep relationships that are balanced. So that is whether in life, in friendship, 
in marriage, in the church. Seek relationships where you give 50 and get 50. 50-50 relationships. That is what they tell us is healthy. So that's what we do. We seek relationships where we're giving 50%. And what we do is that we naturally expect 50% in return. Meet me halfway. But what happens in any of these relationships, what happens in any of these relationships when we find that we're in a season where the other person's not given 50 or even 40 or even 30, they're not even given 10% to this relationship. What does gospel love do then? Well, where on that sliding scale did Jesus meet you? At 40%? Twenty percent? Maybe he he came ninety-five percent? Maybe he came ninety-nine percent and you gave the one. No, this was the point of Philippians two, isn't it? Jesus came the full one hundred percent to love us. We gave nothing to earn his love. We met him nowhere except in our dead spiritual state. So what I just encourage you is that the gospel seems to favor imbalanced relationships. After all, that's the only way to describe Christ's love for you, isn't it? Ed Welch is really helpful on this. He says, throughout scripture, God is the one who loves more than he is loved. God always makes the first move. God advertises extravagant affections for us even when we are indifferent or opposed to him. The foundation of our entire life is that we were loved first by God. So I'll just ask you, what relationships, what person are you holding out on because you just know it's going to be a hard relationship? So you look at your relationships and think, oh, that's a 70 percenter. I'm not touching that. So maybe it's someone in the church. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe, maybe it's your spouse. You know, I just encourage you that the gospel frees you and empowers you to move toward those relationships. You don't have to fear those relationships, but you can actually embrace the sacrifice that it's going to take to love that person like Christ has loved you. In. And maybe even enjoy the fellowship of Christ that comes with suffering in that little way for his namesake, for the picture of the gospel in your marriage, in that relationship. You know, sometimes we, sometimes we love the idea of church more than the actual church, don't we? The idea of a church, people living in community, just giving themselves to each other is really nice, and then you get in the community and somebody has a need, and that's going to hurt. The actual bride of Christ, at least for now, is messy and needy until he takes us home. We can jump into that with the freedom of Christ. All right, two more quick things. So one other reason, so sacrifice hurts. And I think that's because love will make us sacrifice our idols. So the third thing that makes love hard is that we love our idols. So when a need arises in the church, in any church, what's, what's typically the nature of a need in the church? Money, time, 
resources. Now, what might be our top three idols, you think? Maybe money, maybe time, maybe resources. So a need, when a need arises, it's inherently going to infringe on our idols, the things that we, hate, we love, the things that we hate to give up. We love our idols. You ever, you ever read through the book of 1 John and come to that seemingly random exhortation at the end of the book? Flip over to the end of 1 John. First John 5, 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Hasn't mentioned that anywhere else in the book. Scholars spilling tons of ink on what this might be. I just think, could it be that if you don't keep yourself from idols, you actually will not be able to love one another, truly? If you hold on to your idols, you cannot hold on to one another. As long as we're holding on to what we love and other people need that, we're going to love the things that we idolize more than our brothers or sisters. And the gospel is calling us, it's actually freeing us and saying that when we give up those things to meet the needs of others, that is a picture of the gospel. A simpler thing is giving money, saying, I don't, I don't idolize this thing. It doesn't control me, and this other person needs it. It's a picture of the gospel. And finally, I would just encourage you, what's uh, one final reason that loving one another is hard is that loving takes knowing one another. I would just encourage you, know one another well. Spend time with one another. You know, it may feel fine to, to kind of not know other people in the church, right? It might feel like you're doing just fine with that. That it's kind of easy to come in and, and go and you haven't really talked with people or met with people or you go through the week and not really knowing one another in that certain way. But I think the question I would ask is, could it be that the other people need you? You know, I think we'd be surprised at how easy it is to be a lonely member of a church. How easy it is to be a lonely member of a good church. So what do you do about it? I think just, I think just showing up and just being intentional about knowing one another. Put yourself in a position to live out this command to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. So how do you know if you're truly loving someone? Well, how do you know if God has truly loved you? He's laid down his life for you. And I think what John is saying is that the measure is the same for us. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are not um, naturally good at loving one another. We're naturally good at loving ourselves, at preserving our own idols and turning a heart against those in need. And we pray that you would use uh, this word by your spirit to open up our hearts to love those that you've put in our lives. You give us grace to be a picture of the gospel to a watching world. And pray this for Jesus' name, amen.